Well, hey there, freaks. It's your boy, Marty Bent. A little hungover, a little ragged in Dallas, recording this pre-roll ad for the Cash App. Hey, if you haven't downloaded the Cash App yet, what the hell are you thinking? Go to the App Store, whatever it's the Google or the Apple App Store. Download the Cash App. Use the code STACKINGSATS, one word, S-T-A-C-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You'll get $5, and then $5 is going to go to our very good friend, Al's Lacrosse in Chicago. Uh, and then after you get that $5, you're going to be able to use the Cash App for the Boost program. Uh, you're going to be able to buy Bitcoin. You're going to be able to send Bitcoin. You're going to be able to receive Bitcoin. Uh, and you're going to be able to do a bunch of shit. You're going to be able to uh, customize your own card. You're going to be able to spend money places. You're going to be able to send Bitcoin to the app. Convert it to U.S. dollars if you're in a pinch. I don't, I don't advise that, but hey. Sometimes people get into trouble and you do some stuff. The Cash App is there for you. Um, must say, uh, the coffee boost is not what it used to be. You have to go to the coffee shop five times before you get the dollar off. But do not fret. There are other merchants and other savings they can do via the boost program. So go download the Cash App today uh, at your local app store. Use the code StackingSats. Get that $5. And start saving money. And start stacking sats. Thinking about your future. I think you guys are going to like this episode with Tur Demeester. We threw this together haphazardly. Not haphazardly, but uh, last minute. Tur tapped me on the back and said, hey, I have an hour before I head back to Austin. Do you want to chat? And I said, a, a fucking course I want to chat, Tur. So here's our conversation. Enjoy. Okay. from the crib. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy, Marty Bent, here at a foreign studio in a hotel lobby in a Doubletree lobby in Dallas, Texas, uh, sitting down with somebody I've been waiting to sit down with for years now that this podcast has been out. Uh, this interview came together last minute, so I'm very excited that it did come together. So we've got 45 minutes before our boy, Tur Demeester, has to catch a bus back to Austin. Tur, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Marty. Good to be here. Thanks for coming on, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, nudging my arm and saying, hey, I have an hour. Let's I think do last this. time we tried to get together, it was like New York, and it was just one borough too far, I think, to make it work. Yeah. Consensus week during during that week in particular. It's never never easy to coordinate schedules. There's too much stuff going on. Um, but again, yeah, we only have 45 minutes here. Let's jump right into it. Uh, we did a little pre-interview prep. Uh, let's get through the basic questions. You have been... Somebody who I've been reading uh, for years now to learn more about Bitcoin. And I would like to know what drew you to Bitcoin in particular. How did you find it? And what drove you to start uh, Adam and Capital? Yeah, so what drove me to Bitcoin, it was, I, I guess I want to say fear. Uh, I was scared of this, um, just learning about the history of money and banking. I was like, man, how is this long-term sustainable, like living at the heart of Europe and seeing how um, how little capital these banks had, and then also seeing the the banking crisis happen, and Belgium had it one of the worst. Like we had like five big banks that were teetering, and uh, needed to be restructured and bailed out. And to this day, they're still super like zombie banks, basically. Yeah, and so I was like, man, like this is like, you know, a, 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 an economic nuclear winter that could potentially happen, especially if the euro starts breaking down or these these government bonds start really because it is the, the the debt in europe is just 
you cannot pay it back. It's just a matter of when it's going to be unwound and, and, and be defaulted upon. So I was really like kind of freaked out. Like, how do I, you know, I'm here in my mid twenties. Like, how do I make sure that I, I'm not trapped and stuck here? What were you doing at this point? Um, I was working on like, uh, um, I could some academic papers. I was translating books. Um, I was, all kinds of things i sold shoes like <laughs> i really just whatever to pay the bills uh i built some websites um because uh, i had dropped out of university and but i was still kind of i wanted this intellectual career i just didn't know how to make it happen outside of the university um and then uh yeah it just kind of accumulated into writing about current affairs economics really trying to for myself just trying to understand what's going on what should i do um, and then that turned into a newsletter and with the newsletter, I was looking to find things out of the box. Like I felt like disenfranchised and not really, I didn't really believe in the robustness of the European economy almost at large. So I just had a really hard time buying blue chip stocks and re or recommending them for my newsletter. So I felt like I had to find something else and then, you know, it doesn't take long to run into goals and be like, oh yeah, that, that makes sense. If there's like a reckoning and, and a, an inflationary crisis, then with gold, at least you maintain your purchasing power and you can buy things on the cheap. That's, that's kind of the general strategy. If you have a, a very liquid asset in a period of deep crisis, then you are in the best position to then invest at the bottom when nobody else can buy because their money is stuck in the bank or they just need cash. Um, but yeah, I mean, gold alone was just a bit, it just felt a bit too easy and too simple. So I just kept looking for things. And uh, I, for, for a little while, I was like investigating this cold fusion scam <laughs> that initially I, I thought was maybe real, like this Italian scientist. And, you know, and, and eventually it just they just they were they were a scam. And luckily, I identified it before I recommended anyone to invest. But so that was kind of the angle was like, what is out there that nobody's looking at? Because all the newsletters I was looking at were like stock picking newsletters. So I felt like there has to be more. Um, yeah. And then uh, once I found it, I wasn't sold immediately. I was mostly worried about how can you not just make more of it like that was so mm -hmm. as soon as I really started grasping the actual scarcity aspects, that's when I started getting excited. And so when did you uh, sort of gather the confidence to go from adamant research to to bringing in people's money and, and pitching Bitcoin to oh. to big? Yeah, that's much later. Like so yeah. like the newsletter I did in 2011 and then, you know, I went full time into Bitcoin from 2013 as an independent investor. And then I wrote my first adamant research reports around 2015. And I felt like I just had a lot to prove in terms of you know, winning people's confidence and showing that I'm like long-term committed. And then also just to kind of still help myself understand the market better and, and, and kind of get to a place where I feel like I have something to offer that, that is maybe uh, just really worthwhile. And then the, yeah, the fund really came out of the, just wanting to do something that's an extension of what I'm already doing. So, I mean, the basic concept of a hedge fund is like, I think managing money for friends, like that's kind of where it came from. Um, and that's why hedge funds are kind of, you know, more private and, and, and not so it's not a public offering, right? You don't mm -hmm. promote it. Um, and so like, even in this podcast, like I'm, I'm not going to say much more about it than that, that it's just like an extension of what I was already doing. And, um, and, um, and that feels very natural. Yeah. No. And I mean, 
it seems like a very natural course of direction for you because uh, again thank you for all the content you put out over the years thank you for getting on real vision early and oh yeah and pitching the message there yeah that's been a fun ride yeah uh by the way i don't know if your listeners know but real vision is like a it's like a netflix for investors like you pay once a year and then you get to listen to all these investors that's the funniest thing about uh your interviews on real if you go back and search tour de Meester, it looks like you've been through a war since the first interview to, to now <laughs> bitcoin has aged you i think we were joking oh about this yeah on yeah, yeah yeah it looked like uh, a very young harry potter and now i'm like the weathered <laughs> beaten down uh, yeah fire resistant bitcoiner mm-hmm. so switching uh gears a little bit here how'd you end up in texas like how some uh, somebody from europe end up in austin yeah. texas running yeah. running a bitcoin hedge fund well i mean i think it's to some extent it's a it's a new frontier and i, I like to be where i think things are happening and uh, i i really have a a strong urge to get away from places that i feel like are are more um kind of sleepy or paralyzed or or just just like that i just like the dynamism um so yeah i mean the the initial arrival in the u.s was more kind of vacationy but then we were more serious about it and we started thinking about where do we want to set up base like what is going to be base camp for us me and my wife um and really kind of did a pretty systematic overview like kind of uh systematic analysis of like all right well what are our criteria and then it was like you know i i I want a place where there's uh financial dealings happening financial center business center i want technology i want um a good airport uh, and then eventually it was also like, huh, well, what about a mild winter? Like, that sounds nice. <laughs> <laughs> and and then it's also like, you know, you want reasonable taxes and you want friendly people. And so, yeah, we, we tried a few places. We were traveling around. But then eventually just um, I, I think Texas is even though it's booming, I think it's still undervalued and it, it has a lot more to, to come. And that's exciting. Yeah. And I love that it's in between both coasts. So you can just fly up and down very easily. Uh, whereas like if you're. In one of the corners, then, you know, going to the other corner is a lot further away. Yeah, no, it's not fun going to L.A. from from New York or SF from New York. It's uh, right. a hell of a plane ride. No, there in this Texas, this is only my second time in Texas, and it's crazy, the the vibe here and the, just the, the aurora of freedom that, that reigns free here. It's crazy. Yeah, and th- there's a lot of history that, that kind of fits with that. I mean, it's the, the end of the Appalachian Trail, so these, like, early I mean, actually not the earliest settlers because they just kind of created new england but then the ones that came a bit later they were like not very welcome and so they were just kind of pushed away and and every time they felt bugged by the um, you know the guys that were setting up plantations in the south or by like the more religious people that were north of them they just kept going and so eventually they ended up on the texas plains which was just very rough to cross because there, there was hardly any any rain anymore and the comanche were there and it was kind of so that 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 line between um you know going down from from dallas that line is like and and uh, some places are called forts like fort worth and other places mm-hmm. was kind of the f- the ultimate frontier is like you, you almost couldn't go any further without killing yourself um but yeah, and and it, and it was like people with big dreams came here. Like even before they knew about oil, it was still the idea that if you go further, you know, you can claim a bit of a bigger stake and really make a life for yourself, even though, you know, technically you're very poor, but at least. And it's also like, you know, they were traveling with their cattle and they had their whiskey. Like that was their portable wealth, um, which I think is just, yeah, fascinating. 
Yeah, no, it's um, that was actually fascinating today. Tour and I were just at an event co-hosted by Adamant and Unchained Capital, and Gideon, who's speaking about mining, it just didn't come into my consciousness until he said this. But like ninety nine point nine percent of the world's energy is run by monopolies, either controlled by the state or uh, other types of entities. And Texas has just a few pure unregulated grid, which is is crazy to think that they can just have anybody own land if they find energy it's theirs and they can do whatever they want with it yeah it's it's quite incredible and and obviously it adds to the pleasure of living here is that energy prices are low because of all the competition and there's just really an abundance of it um very yeah interesting stuff and yeah i mean there may be a future for mining here mm-hmm. no, yeah i think there definitely is but one thing while i have you here what i want to talk about is again your presentation uh, at this <coughs> little get together the symposium if you will that we just came from and i really like the the parallels that you uh have found between the reformation and bitcoin in particular and um if you could sort of expound about upon what you were saying earlier today yeah a little bit it'll be like a sneak peek because i i am going to be working on a report about it because i think it's you know the thing with these historical analogies is that it's it's never perfect and it's, there's never going to be a repeat of history but i do think that by by studying history, you can kind of um, make connections that you otherwise w- would not. You can kind of connect things that are seemingly unrelated. Um, and also you can sometimes just scratch away possibly. You can just have a better idea of the probability of certain trends playing out and, and how one thing could be a catalyst for something else. Uh, so I guess to me, studying history is like a way to discipline myself on like um, just to not to not to get too crazy with extrapolation because that can get you nowhere i think so so uh and i've i've made analogies in the past with like the petroleum discovery of petroleum versus the whale oil which was a big industry at the time how that was disrupted and and with the dot-com the dot-com boom versus the 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 crypto craze of 2017 and and some other things but this one i find really super fascinating because the the reformation was this incredible like just sweeping shift like a shift of wealth a shift of power uh like the power balance was massively shifted uh also an enormous explosion of um immigration like people were not only fleeing countries but even like you know uh going to different continents for the first time ever in 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 large amounts and large you know large droves um and and i i've always tried to find things that would help me understand Bitcoin in the bigger picture. And so I feel like this is really something fascinating because there are some preconditions that are similar. Uh, so in the, the Reformation basically was, it refers to um, the desire of um, the merchant class who was emerging back then uh, and other people to basically uh, challenge the monopoly of the Catholic Church because they they had a monopoly on giving you the keys to heaven. Like, you know, if you wanted to go to heaven, you needed some kind of priest to tell you, like, it's fine, you're good, you have my blessing. And uh, and over time, that monopoly was, you could say, abused. They were basically charging more and more money to get into heaven. They would sell these indulgences, which then the church used to pay for very large projects like St. Peter's Cathedral and other things. And so people got, like, fed up with that. Uh, so that was the Reformation in the 16th century. And if you look at the preconditions, at least my interpretation of that, I see three. Like one is there were some really uh, 
incredibly impactful technological innovations at the time. There was the, you know, the um, invention of book printing, mm -hmm. uh, which I mean, obviously, all these things—the actual invention—you could argue happened earlier. But really, when it when it broke through and really kind of started becoming performant, was the 15th century. Uh, sorry, 16th. So book printing and it, uh, you know, the Gutenberg printing press lowered the price of books uh, from. And a year's wage to the price of a chicken, like it was incredible. That's how crazy. Yeah, I mean, over a hundred years. Book was a year's wage. Back so, then? so yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you have to think like it was a manuscript. It was like meticulously hand copied by a monk. Like that mm -hmm. was what was available, and then it was on animal hide. And I mean, yeah. So very expensive. Um, so all of a sudden that happened. So information all of a sudden was able to spread so quickly and people were able to pseudonymously write pamphlets and stuff like that. So ideas were all of a sudden spreading a lot more quickly. So, th so that's the first phase. And I think arguably now we're seeing something similar where there's some really powerful technologies that are shifting things like, I mean, um, um, encryption, social media, email, telecommunications, um, um, even um, open source, the open source movement, uh, the commoditization of computing power and um, and har and computer storage, like information storage, all those things combined make it so much easier for individuals to work remotely, to set up startups, to basically disrupt the existing equilibrium. Um, so that's the first. And then the second, I think, precondition is that you have wealth that generated by these innovations and that wealth is starting to get concentrated among a certain part of the population. So 16th century is the merchant class, which for the first time they had, they had more and more means. And I think having financial means also means that you can, you have a, you know, you have an escape hatch. So you're more likely to speak up and protest because like Balaji has said in his presentation a few years ago, like you can either, voice which is to speak or to protest or you can exit mm -hmm. so if you have some money then you actually even have the option to just move out if it gets if it gets difficult so so that is and and today of course i think the emerging new money is really the technology investors like it's the dot-com billionaires it's the 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 cryptocurrency investors, like all those kind of people, I think are, are really a new generation. Not only like is the money passed on to them from older generation, but they've actually created and invested in new wealth. And then the last part, I think that you need to have this, you know, basically ingredients for this uh, explosive cocktail is, um, is for uh, a rent-seeking monopoly, right? So you need a big mon monopolic service provider who is increasingly... Um, you could say exploiting the customers and in, in the 16th century it was like yeah you get your way into heaven you always need to go through a priest or a church and that's very expensive uh, to get things done um, and today I mean I would argue it's the the fiat banking system right which is and the rent seeking is what Michael Goldstein was talking about earlier today is the 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 money printing right you just print money and then even if you yourself didn't print the money but you're the first to receive it you can spend it at a higher purchasing power than the people who are going to receive the money later so it's a taxation of the population so it's rent seeking and so i think that those three combined um are really w and by the way the last innovation i forgot to mention today is bitcoin obviously right peer-to-peer mm -hmm. -peer technology encryption bitcoin but so i think all those three factors combined uh, you could argue that that um, Bitcoin is really the catalyst for uh, potentially a, a massive um, shift in the power balance of the world, of um, 
uh, it could it could bring about immigration flows it could um um really make big changes happen uh because similar to how the water was a moat like in the 16th century you could you could hide behind a big river and it was harder for armies to cross it or you could cross an ocean and then set up shop there stake your claim in the new world uh i think similarly today we have encryption and so and and pseudonymity and those kind of things so you can kind of instill that moat um uh not necessarily to do something evil but just to say i don't agree with the status quo i want to bypass this monopoly service provider i just want to do it my way please don't bother me so that's kind of a defensive technology that i think um is 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 being used so yeah those are some of the thoughts that i shared today yeah no it's uh very prescient right it is uh yeah. it um, being involved in bitcoin for as long as I have it, it seems like common sense here, but like for most of the world, like pre corners if you will, they, uh, it's hard to get them to wake up and realize that they, they were born in a, a similar si- situation that the people living in the 16th century were in. And that's sort of, this is just a random tangent I'm going on here. And that's sort of what I try to do with the newsletter and this podcast is, is find little bits of information that can sort of open people's minds, I guess for you, when you're pitching Bitcoin to individuals and friends, what, what do you sort of focus on uh, first or or what properties of Bitcoin yeah. or, or sort of the highest hit rate of people having an aha moment? Right. Well, um, I would say I first try to figure out what people need and what they're looking for because I think Bitcoin has a lot to offer. And so... Yeah, it really depends on where people are coming from. Like maybe they have family who lives abroad and they, you know, the ability to send money without uh, an intermediary is really powerful or uh, they have lived in a country with high inflation before and so they're, they are always looking for a store of value or, um, you know, they're an investor and they want to invest in what's new and they want to know what millennials are going to be driving because by 2029, no, I think it's, I might be wrong. I think it's, 2029 already millennials will be the highest earning generation of our time like they will uh, in the aggregate make the most money so investors want to know like what are millennials going to buy so so i would argue that you know they're going to be a big driver of bitcoin adoption uh, as their earning power increases because a lot of these people have never owned even blue chip stocks like this is they they were just college age when the the markets crashed and then kind of lost faith in a lot of things and so they're a lot more open to non-traditional investing and they don't trust banks compared to older generations so yeah it really depends uh depends where people are coming from yeah no i agree um i was just curious to hear what you're seeing out in the field but let's go back to the conversation at the conference today and actually uh we're talking about your investment strategy which is basically use bitcoin to lever up uh to shoot to short the dollar basically so can you can you jump into the sort of mental framework behind uh, the mindset of shorting the dollar with Bitcoin? Yeah, I can't talk specifics about our strategy, but in general, um, if you have an asset that is liquid and um, that you believe has value for the long term, then um, it is very tempting to use it as a collateral to then do all kinds of activities with. People even do it with non-liquid assets. They use it, they do it with um, real estate. Um, they do it with all kinds of things. Um, <clears throat> and the nice thing about 
using Bitcoin as collateral is that uh, the counterparty can basically engage in, in, in getting a secured loan from you because the Bitcoin can actually be moved and then they actually can see that the moment um, the value of the Bitcoin goes low enough, it will be liquidated and they will be compensated. So their risk is is very low because it's such a liquid asset. And so I think over time that will cause the interest rates that you can um, get for lending out your Bitcoin to some extent or giving it up in collateral is going to be sharper than for some of these illiquid assets like real estate. Um, of course, there's a big regulatory moat in favor of using real estate as collateral, you know, so that's going to have to be resolved over time. But but uh, in principle, I think it's very interesting. And then, yeah, once you borrow against that, then you can decide, like, uh, can I find something that will give me a higher yield than the interest that I pay on the dollars? And of course, it helps if those dollars slowly decrease in value and, and the assets that you're invested in, your collateral and your investments both increase in value. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the that's kind of the idea behind such a strategy. Um, and there's, you know, there's a bunch of other Bitcoin alpha strategies out there that I think are, are interesting looking at. Um, and it kind of depends on, you know, your, f maybe your fiscal situation, your, where you live, uh, your appetite for risk. Um, and then also your assessment about where we are in the market in the, in terms of the phases of the market. I think all those play into um, what strategy to choose, like Bitcoin denominated loans or or um, being active in the in the options market. You can also kind of have superior returns over Bitcoin or obviously trading altcoins. I mean, a lot of people have done better than Bitcoin in, in 2016, 17. After that, it's been a lot harder uh, to outperform Bitcoin. But it's, you know, it's it's a strategy. Yeah. No, I think one gentleman in the crowd just naturally uh, recommended a speculative attack instead of levering up bitcoin and dollars using dollars you use like a weaker currency um to buy up bitcoin and then lever up with bitcoin and short that currency it's not not anything i would recommend people go run out and do well, it's I mean, funny george soros it's a page out of a page out of george soros's book right yeah where um where basically i think the idea is that um if you go short that currency, say that it's like the what is it, the Suriname? I don't know what currency they have there, but imagine that currency. Uh, so you borrow a huge amount of it, and then you sell it, and then you obviously have a debt denominated in that currency. But after selling, you go to a stronger currency, and the idea is that you basically it's already a weak market, but your massive intervention breaks the camel's back and that's the deluge that's the start of the breakdown which is that's what george soros nailed with the british pound when he did that it's not that you know he alone caused it to break it's that it was already weak and he kind of gave it a little kick less snowflake on the average right if right you will. but i mean but this is part of why the imf was brought into life it's to help countries protect themselves against potential speculative attacks like that so that's why the imf has a pool of currencies that can be used to shore up uh, um, a, a small currency against an attack like that. Yeah. But it all, all this. So, like so sorry, but to follow that logic, uh, so you could make an argument that maybe the IMF needs to buy Bitcoin so that they can defend against a Bitcoin fueled speculative attack on another currency. That is uh -huh. a tidbit I did not think of. That's been around since 2013. I think somebody wrote a paper about Pierre, that. Pierre, Pierre. Pierre wrote that. I thought it. I didn't. I didn't know the IMF was involved with this, but 
it does sort of beg the question, like if there a speculative does attack does happen, you become to a Bitcoin standard. It really highlights the the harsh reality that we're living in a currency system based on barter, right? So you're bartering between currencies, really, when you're doing international trade and stuff like that. At the end of the day, would you agree with that semantically? I don't know. I mean, I guess I d- I'm not really is it, is up to date on the the definition of barter, strictly speaking. I think it's, it means like you you trade with non fungible goods, but I do think that most maybe you're right. Maybe smaller currencies are actually not that fungible at all, especially if you're talking about large amounts of money. Yeah, no, no, just trying to itch at the point that like it would be great to have sort of like a metric system of value in money and, and wouldn't it be oh like that that is very primitive that we have all these like hundreds of currencies and like it's it's pretty much a nightmare for everyone traveling or but it's yeah. basically these like mini taxation systems right they're all tax farms like they're all like you know if you print the local currency then you, it's like what argentina is doing like why is argentina in this crazy inflationary environment is because the government has been printing money right they've been trying to pay their bills and they've been probably having some socialist expansionary policies and then they tax their people that way so it's you know it's not really a system that's designed for the common good it's it's designed for the good of the government that's running the scheme yeah no i mean argentina what they issued 100 year bonds two years ago maybe yeah and everybody thought like oh they're wall street guys in charge now they'll do a good job and people are buying it and um I guess the re- the bet is not paying off. No. And you have, like, I was telling Parker this earlier. I was working out yesterday. I don't watch CNBC that, that often, but I just had it on in the gym because the market's been volatile this week. And there was two or three instances where two people seriously suggested that the U.S. issue 50 and 100-year bonds. And to me... 1,500? No, 50 and 100-year. Oh, but even so... Yeah. Wow. So to me, that signals sort of desperation. Is, do you think I'm a correct in assuming that? I mean, it's a dead end street. It's absolutely a dead end street. I mean, what are you gonna? Do? I mean, like, in in the in the Middle Ages and later, what you had was basically perpetual bonds. So you would not even bonds really, because it was there were some religious reasons why a bond was considered to be not kosher and not like. I think it had to do with the idea that charging charging interest on money mm-hmm. that was like usury, usury and you shouldn't yeah. do that um but so um governments would issue annuities so you would give them money now and they would like just pay you interest on a phantom loan so you would never get the principal back but in perpetuity they would pay you back interest which is kind of like a you know a hundred year bond or something it's almost like forever uh but of course if you if you take on enough of that debt eventually you just default and that's what's going to happen around the world as well unless of course you manage to debase your own currency enough so then you're you know it's it's it becomes super easy to pay off your debt with worthless currency and i think that's the defaults we're going to go to like we're not going to see genuine defaults we're going to see default by proxy which means you know just very high inflation devaluation you're going to devalue the debt away yeah um so staying in this vein i guess like how do you see this playing out do you see um currency by currency falling or do you see sort of like a global uh crisis where where a lot of markets fall at once um is this going to be slow and somewhat less painful transition or do you think the the state of the current financial system around the world is such that it, it needs an abrupt sort of punch in the arm there's this quote by an economist called uh, i think he's called rudiger dornbush 
and he was in i believe he was in mexico at the time of the the peso crisis before that he was there and then during it and he it was something like he said that it happened it was just so so slowly it was so slowly and then it happened all at once like it just it's very sudden um and it kind of has to do with the, the panic that comes with you know all of a sudden the masses are like panicking and people want to exit and then by definition you all get stuck at the exit and you can't your money gets stuck in the bank and the people the banks are closed down and uh all of a sudden international investors are dumping the currency but to me it's hard to see it all collapse at the same time i i do i think the dollar has this exorbitant privilege of being you know the currency of the world and so i think that um it's going to be used and seen as a safe haven for quite a while uh so in a way like sitting in a dollar-based economy, I think we'll get to witness the collapse of several currencies before maybe uh, the dollar will devalue as well. Yeah. No, I, I think I, I agree with that notion. I mean, we're seeing it right now. Like, Argentine peso collapsed by 25% earlier this week. Looks like the Hong Kong dollar is losing its peg to the dollar. I wonder dollar. what that's going to... Yeah, I wonder what's going to happen there. Because, like, it looks like... Yeah, it looks like... Uh, there's just i don't know how many tanks were standing ready to roll in it could be that it'll be like a crimea situation where they just annex it or something on the car ride over here there was video of the tanks moving into hong kong not on the border anymore um so yeah that's that's a crazy situation and like to think and it happened so fast i mean it was only like two years ago that like hong kong was just the ultimate place to be and the real estate is booming and Wow. The last three months in particular, just complete deterioration. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and in some way, you could argue, like, you know, going back to the Reformation, is that it's like these are, these are um, political powers who are very attached to their monopolistic privileges of, you know, money printing and economic stimulus and, and kind of manipulation. And then seeing that Hong Kong is used as a platform for capital flight they really don't like that they you know they they can't and so they're trying to dam off like to kind of prevent the prevent the dam from breaking well that's the interesting part of of this particular situation because it's 2019 you have the ability to watch these protests in real time via periscope and live streams and you have basically the world watching this little island in the south of china uh and if on the Chinese government, you know that every eye is on you. Like, how do you even act in this situation? Yeah, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, right? right? I think they're kind of really in a very, I mean, from their point of view, in a very unenviable position. Because if they don't act, then the capital flight is probably just going to, you know, it's going to accelerate. But if they do act, they uh, they kind of chase the money out of Hong Kong anyway. So it's kind of like... Is it going to be, you know, maybe if they, they kind of do rush in and it's like a Crimea thing, maybe they can like slow down the capital flight and which is from a political point of view, maybe what you want to do because most politicians don't think in the very long term. They're more like, can I save my skin for the next five years? Um, so maybe that's that's what's happening. Yeah. No, it's um, it'll be interesting to see what what plays out there and. And how people react, because we were talking about this at the symposium earlier today. That's are people in these countries with capital flight buying Bitcoin? Like, do you think there is any flows from these capital centers into Bitcoin? And uh, brought up the fact that a, pe- a couple of people point out the exchanges in China 
say that they're trading at a discount, but then you brought up a good point about Tether and the, the addiction to Tether in Asia in particular, and that that, that may sort of hide uh, actual, or excuse me, it may sort of underscore the, excuse me, the exchange discounts may sort of underscore the underlying demand that's there. Yeah, the idea is that maybe they're paying a premium to buy the Tether, and then with the Tether, there's just kind of the peer of everybody else because everybody's using Tether to buy stuff on Binance, etc., uh, probably also uh, Bitfinex. But, I mean, even so, we're still not at, like, tsunami levels of capital flight, right? Otherwise, Bitcoin would be at 100,000 or, or higher. Like, it's still probably mostly fleeing the dollar and using the traditional traditional means to um, protect themselves. Yeah. Or, or, you know, foreign assets, you know, foreign real estate or something like that. Well, that's that was the most interesting thing part of hong kong because it's like one of the the highest end real estate markets in the world and you have china coming down there where does all that capital go like you're actually seeing like cities like new york vancouver san francisco sort sort of constrict regulations there after years and years of capital flight into their real estate markets and people are finally starting to wake up and be like hey like where does that hong kong money go Um, and then also if you have a currency crisis in asia then that could mean that all of a sudden all these investors and family offices are short of cash and then they need to start liquidating their foreign real estate to just you know make keep the lights on um so you could see an, a ripple effect in, in western markets too i think yeah um we live in very interesting times we have 10 minutes left here before you have to leave for this beautiful bus service that you keep uh keep shilling to me <laughs> apparently i have to move down to texas for the buses <laughs> it's all about barbecue amazing weather except for two months um pretty i think one thing is also that i think it's there's there's a nice humidity whereas like you only appreciate it once you go to very dry areas and you're kind of like coughing at night and your your eyes are all sandy it's something really nice about having like a warm humid evening things like that yeah no i'm a big fan of watching a thunderstorm on a on a porch or something Mm -hmm. on a human night Mm -hmm. Um, before we let you go, what what are your current thoughts on the current state of the Bitcoin protocol from like a technical uh, perspective? What are it's you? It's terrible. Lo- it's teetering. <laughs> Just you know, it's about to break. Give it another few months. I'm kidding. Um, but do finish your question. I was gonna say, is there anything you're looking out for in particular? Anything you're excited for in particular? Um, as somebody has to custody Bitcoin, as somebody has to yeah, yeah. So uh, things that excite me in the Bitcoin space, like I mean, uh, f- it's actually really nice that uh, a lot of the noise has like died down, and and there's a renewed, genuine focus on Bitcoin from investors. Like I feel like I have a lot less explaining and defending to do when it comes to Bitcoin with the dominance at seventy percent. I mean, it kind of speaks for itself. Um, so that's nice. I think that institutions are wanting to are getting in and are wanting to get better um insurance um legal uh, custody solutions and so i think that there's really interesting stuff happening in derivatives markets which you know there's you know you can get exposure to bitcoin by proxy which is i think totally fine uh as long as it's a transparent contract um but also more sophisticated um setups for custody with not only multi-sig but only adding the also adding the time element where um you have these really interesting ways to as a as a as an owner of the coin to still retain ultimate control even though you defer 
uh, responsibility and signing power to some other parties. So I think that's going to be super powerful. I think um, asset issuance in Bitcoin, I think, is still underestimated. Like people, people think like, oh, Ethereum has they have their whole ICO thing going and tokens that that's their spiel. Like I think you haven't seen anything yet. I think we're going to see pretty amazing um, token issuance happen. Not that I'm a super fan of it. Like I think a lot of it is going to be garbage. But I do like the idea of uh, having a market that is based in Bitcoin technology and that's probably also going to be traded in Bitcoin, like Bitcoin denominated uh, settlement. Well, I don't know if you've been paying attention to this in particular with Liquid, but li- Liquid Tether. Some people are saying that Liquid Tether may have just made like the the first like large dark pool in crypto trading history because that's like the one bad thing about trading between exchanges right now is that you can get like whale calls on yep. Twitter just yep. like showing that you're moving your Bitcoin mm-hmm. to a new wallet mm-hmm. and like as an as a trader like what the fuck like everybody can see that I'm trading right now and yeah people can front run you and mm-hmm. all that and so like now with Tether on Liquid combined with confidential transactions you can just see how much money is being moved you can't see from where and to where just know that that a lot has been yeah and blockstream doesn't look so stupid now anymore right people are often being like oh like very critical and like oh why do you want to do all that confidentiality and it's like well there's perfectly economic investment related reasons to want to do that it's not because they're crazy libertarians it's just the way markets want to operate yeah you want to be able to move money between exchanges pretty quickly to trade and to trade with a certain amount of privacy yeah Exactly. Um, last question before we go out here. What do you think the next cycle like? We just had ICOs, like 2017. We've had, before that, you had, like, fair POW launch coins and then, like, first-generation POS coins, quote-unquote. Like, I am under the belief that you're not going to see, like, a huge ICO rally like we did in 2017 again. Like, I think the market has wised up a bit. And yeah. A lot of people are saying like IEOs may be the next iteration of, of like the dumb money and the pumpable stuff. Like, I don't think we're going to have as severe pumps in alternative markets as we have in the past. Do you agree right. with that? I agree. And I think it's time for a comeback of the national coins. <laughs> Spain coin, <laughs> Dutch coin, the Dutch Gilder. Well, PBOC bring it on. I think they're making one, right? China coin. No, I'm kidding, of course. No, I'm kidding. Uh, although, actually, I do think that uh, I, I've said this before that w- we there's gonna you know we're, we're moving into the hold my beer phase for uh, large banks, large corporations, nation states to launch their own currencies, and I think there'll be bad investments, but I do think they're really gonna try to do that um, to kind of kind of compete with Bitcoin or trying to challenge it, which you know going to our reformation uh, analogy is like the counter reformation. It's like the answer of the church to to all this stuff. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm super bullish on the Bitcoin lending market, super bullish on the Bitcoin derivatives market. Like really, this is the bottom layer of this gigantic stack and it's just so underestimated how, how much can be built on top of Bitcoin. Because that's the thing, if you have a solid basis, you can build really, really high. And, and people have been underestimating the value of this, an ossified protocol at the bottom of something that, you know, as a, as a foundational layer, people have kind of seen Bitcoin as slow and boring. And well, that's exactly what it needs to be to be the foundation for a lot more. Yeah, I think that's a perfect place to end it. You have a bus to catch. Thank you for tapping me on the shoulder. Thanks, Marty. It was fun. Yeah, this is always fun. Um, cool. Hopefully I see you soon. I don't know what your travel plans are, but I'm sure we'll run into each other yep, at some point. We will. Peace and love, freaks.